Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law with your host, me, Gabe Feldman. On this episode, I dive into one of the craziest, most sensational sports stories in my lifetime, the PGA Tour, Live Tour, Saudi government saga. Joining me to help make sense of it all is one of the dominant voices in antitrust law, Matt Stoller, the director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project, author and creator of the newsletter, Big. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Matt Stoller. Hey, thanks for having me, Gabe. Thank you for coming on. And we have a lot to talk about in the world of golf and maybe what is the most stunning and confusing and maybe baffling development, certainly in the golf world in a very long time, but maybe in the sports world in a very long time. And you wrote a great piece for your newsletter last week, calling the deal between Live and PGA and DP Tour crazy, among other things, and saying that it's baffling and you don't quite understand it. And we have a little more information than we did last week, I think, when you wrote the piece, not a lot more. But I think the latest is that they are going to create a new separate entity that will be independent of the three current entities. And they are going to combine their self-related commercial businesses and rights and that the PGA Tour is going to maintain its separate tax-exempt status, control its own scheduling, sanctioning of events, rules, and competition. But that LIV, or I should say PIF, would give about 2 to $3 billion and the ongoing antitrust litigation would go away. So now with a little bit more time to look at things and a little more information, is it still as crazy as you wrote? Is, it, is there any explanation of how you think this might be able to withstand antitrust scrutiny? So it depends on what this is, right? So like, we don't know what the details of the deal are. The PGA at first said it was a merger, then they edited their press release to say it's not a merger. No one really knows what what is actually happening here. So it's a little bit, and like, I'm assuming the details are probably fluid. So the moment you say this thing seems is not going to pass muster, they could probably renegotiate or fully flesh out the details. But the the gist of it is that it's taking two entities, economic entities that were competing vigorously for the services of golfers and, and combining them so that they no longer compete vigorously for the services of golfers. And that is a textbook definition of a violation of the Clayton Act, which is an antitrust law, or the Sherman Antitrust Act, which is a different but related law against monopolization and restraints of trade. Now, the one thing that has come out that could allow for this deal to come through is that the head of the PGA said, look, we cannot afford to compete with Live Golf, so we will, they have an unlimited amount of money, and we had to do this or we wouldn't be able to stay in business. He didn't say exactly that, but there is something called the failing firm defense where if you can show that your business will go into bankruptcy, 
if you don't allow, if a merger doesn't happen, then you can, it's kind of an exception to the antitrust rules because the presumption is maybe there's two firms that are going to merge into a monopoly, but if one of them goes bankrupt, then it's a monopoly anyway. That would be the exception. However, so, I think they'd have to prove that they have a lot of money and they're, it sounds like they're profitable. So I don't know why they would, just because they're not going to make as much money, doesn't mean that they're going to go out of business. So I, I don't, the answer is no, I don't think that anything has changed. They have floated this theory that I don't really think is viable. Do you think on the, in the failing firm defense, I assume that it was Liv that was going to argue that they were the failing firm because they were not making any money. They had paid these golfers so much. Yes, they had unlimited funding from the Saudi government, but that they were essentially going to go out of business. And so that this merger or non-merger saved Live Tour. I hadn't thought about the fact that the PGA Tour thought that they might go out of business. I know they said that they couldn't compete theoretically for a long period of time with how much Live was paying. It didn't, again, that didn't seem real because they'd reached a little bit of equilibrium in terms of players leaving. And it, it did not seem like they were necessarily, again, as you said, they may have been making less money, but not losing money. So it, it's interesting to hear your take that that maybe both of the tours were failing in a way and they thought the only way they could survive. And then the DP tours involved in this as well, European tour, but that the only way that they could survive is that they all merged together or joined together. So I guess that leads to my next question. Then generally speaking in antitrust law, we don't allow the firms or the defendants in an antitrust case to say, unless we restrict competition, the industry is going to be destroyed. That competition doesn't work in our industry. And that's essentially what PGA Tour was arguing is right. we were having to pay so much money to these golfers because the PIF had so much money. Just That's not been a successful antitrust defense in virtually every other industry, but Sports always argue they're unique, and it's seen this as more of a natural monopoly defense that the fir- the industry is most efficient when there's only one tour out there, and so that this was actually pro-competitive, not anti-competitive. But I haven't really seen them make that argument explicitly. Yeah, they. That's not that argument. I don't think is correct. Like I don't think that it's more efficient if you have one versus two, but. I also think it's not a good legal argument. You you can say we're more efficient as a monopolist. The courts don't tend to accept efficiency defenses, or it's very hard to get an efficiency defense, especially when you're combining into a monopoly. And one thing that I just saw this in one press release that a PGA Tour rep argued that the reason this is pro-competitive or would be pro-competitive, again, it's hard to say whether it would be pro-competitive and we don't know what it is is that this was necessary for them to compete more effectively in the overall sports market, which is an argument maybe you can make in the product side that golf competes with tennis and competes with football, but obviously can't make that argument on the labor side because they're not competing with NFL teams for the services of of their golfers. But what do you think about that? Again, I haven't seen that. I've only seen that written once or reported once. I This all seems ex post facto rationalization for a deal that's crazy. Yeah. That's like what they did is 
I think that the Saudis didn't want to get someone sniffing around in their emails because if you're a sovereign wealth fund that works with the CIA to do all sorts of dodgy stuff, do you really like, and they, do you want someone like looking at your emails in public court? Of course not. And then the PGA is probably not, they're probably not psyched about that either. So they want to close this case down. I'm sure there's other weird stuff going on. It's the Saudis, it's professional sports. It's you get any more weird and corrupt. There's just a lot of stuff here that doesn't make any sense. Trump is involved. There's mysterious money for his Scottish golf courses that are losing money, but this does not make any sense. And so they didn't talk to an antitrust lawyer when doing this deal, which is crazy. But you don't even need to talk to an antitrust lawyer. They have three deal guys from Wachtell. They're not antitrust lawyers, but they know the antitrust law exists. All you need to know is, yeah, antitrust law is a thing. It's like saying, okay, yeah, I do DUI law. All you have to do is like, that. it's a DUI lawyer. He knows cocaine is illegal, right? It may not be his specialty, but he knows it's a thing, right? This is, whole thing is crazy. So they, they did this deal. They announced it. It doesn't look like the announcement was rolled out particularly well. So they probably announced it before they were ready. There's some a lot of weird stuff around it. And then afterwards, all, every antitrust lawyer is thinking this deal doesn't make any sense. And now we're like having a discussion of, could it, have you heard any theories? Let's play around intellectually. Like maybe there's this, maybe there's that. It's like, why are we reaching? It's a simple situation. They just wanted to like, they wanted to announce a deal that they probably didn't care if it was legal or not. It's illegal. The end. Yeah, and a more interesting point here is that there was a. I think if this, I think a lot about this. It's like it would be hard to find if you were to ask Americans. If you were to ask, so do you think that Congress, like Congress, is really mad about this deal, right? If you were to ask Americans, so Congress is corrupt, right? They would probably say, yeah, it's corrupt. Like, do you think that like Congress is going to do favors? for rich golfers, they would probably be like, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and in the 1994, the FTC had an extensive investigation into the PGA. And essentially, Congress said, if you go after our rich golfer friends, we will cut your budget by 20%. And so the FTC shut that investigation down by four to zero. Today, Congress is really mad at rich golfers. That's weird. Politically, that's a very weird situation to have Congress being like, we're super mad at rich golfers. Yeah. Like, that, anyway, that I think that's, I don't mean to be like, to. Oh, I know this is a legal podcast, but like, this to me, this strikes me as like, we're beyond the law here. Like, yeah. it's black leather, it's black leather law. It's like clearly illegal. So there's something else. Yeah, it's sports and the law. So it's sports, we, yeah, we can talk about things other than the law. Right. Certainly talk about politics. But it does seem to me that at least part of this is because of the Saudi government, right? This were a bunch of rich white guys starting a tour to merge with another bunch of rich white guys. We wouldn't have the reaction we're having right now, and we wouldn't probably be in the situation at all. But I think there's no question that Congress 
tends to react differently to sports than they do to other areas of industry and treat it differently and doesn't necessarily fall along neat political lines where sometimes you have, you wrote about in the Alston case a couple of years ago, Justice Kavanaugh writing a scathing concurrence claiming that the NCAA was violating antitrust law by limiting labor compensation, which when would, what other situation would Justice Kavanaugh ever write an opinion like that? It's kind of Um, amazing. Can I just mention one thing about, you said they treat sports differently. Like that's totally right. And I was so my, I spent a lot of time in the archives and I read Emanuel Seller in the 50s. Yeah. He had a special subcommittee on Monopoly and he talked about, he had all these great hearings, the steel industry, the ticketing industry, like blah, 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 blah. Like, then he also looked at baseball yeah. and he said, he wrote about, in his autobiography, he wrote about his, a number of things that he did in his life, but he wrote about antitrust and he said, I didn't get, he's like, you would have thought that I was like cursing the Lord the way that, that the people came down on me for baseball, right? Where it was just this, like, you have forsaken the American way, right? He's no one, nobody cared about big steel or all these, like, they were just like, whatever. But like, when he said baseball as a monopoly issue, it was just, he's like, okay, this was crazy. I wish I had the book in front of me because then I could read it because he's just was like, I had never had that a back level of backlash on anything I ever did. Um, yeah. And then you look at the flood opinion, which is one of the you know, most ridiculed Supreme Court opinions of all time, where part one of the opinion is an ode to baseball. And I'm not aware of any other Supreme Court opinion that starts with an ode to the industry or every congressional hearing when they're investigating college sports. Every person, whether it's a Republican or Democrat, right. starts by waxing eloquently about their alma mater and their incredible experience they had with college football or college basketball, when it's a tech hearing, you don't hear them wax eloquently about the Google search they did earlier oh, that day, or they, they just look at it differently. And true. yeah. And that's why, again, I think the Saudi influence here is such a big factor because it's destroying this American institution, even though golf's obviously not an American institution. It's, it was created elsewhere. And this is not just involving the U S tour, but or the but you could just compare it to the nineties when they, it, the opposite right. happened. But yeah, the college sports thing is just, it's, you watch these politicians insincerely talk about their different, or maybe sincerely talk about their, the different teams they like. I, my favorite is when and it was sincere, when there's one congressman named Brad Miller, who not in Congress anymore, but he represented the, he's from North Carolina, he represented this area around Duke university and he went to UNC and Duke and UNC, obviously, are big rivals. And so they asked him, they were like, you represent Duke, but you went to UNC. So would you ever root for Duke? And he said, maybe if they were playing the Taliban. <laughs> and I like his voters respected him for that. Yeah. As a, anyway. I'm a Duke alum. And I know one thing that this country can rally around is hating Duke. So it's and the Taliban. So I guess, Yeah. That's right. That's a hating, hating Duke, hating Alabama. (laughs) Let me ask you a couple of follow-up questions just on on your general approach. And this great article, obviously, in Politico, not obviously, but a great article in Politico written about you that said, among other things, you've done more than anyone else in the country, arguably, to breathe new life into the idea that government should be breaking up monopolies wherever they lurk that for years you've been known for your gladiatorial presence on Twitter. And so we want to talk about the monopoly stuff in a second, but what, how do you, how did you establish a gladiatorial presence 
on Twitter. What makes you a gladiator? Gladiator. I'm a, a gladiator. I'm emotionally, I'm an yeah. emotionally broken human being. <laughs> start with that. Maybe I'm broken in the right way. I don't know. Yeah. No, I. So I think about the problem of concentrations of power, public power, private power, political and economic concentrations of power are dangerous. And I think there's something in the American DNA about like that, where there's just this basic fear that one person or a small group can dominate a large, a large group. And there are a lot of different ways that we try to prevent that. But in the part that I think we have lost sight of and are starting to regain, but like the part that we lost sight of for a long time was the private corporations. And that was since the 80s. There's been this kind of sense of private sector is the private sector. And that's, there's no power there. There's no more, there are no moral questions there. And if you want to do anything to structure those markets, then you're anti-business or you're pro-business, but there isn't a sense of there are debates over how to do business. And so what I was working in the, I worked in Congress during the financial crisis as a staffer and saw that the Fed, Treasury, bank lobbyists, like none of them actually knew how their industry, how the industry worked. And as a result, they made a bunch of choices that I think were problematic. And they made the, philosophically, they we have this financial crisis caused by a consolidation of wealth and power, too big to fail. And the way we will address it is to further consolidate power. We're going to further consolidate too big to fail banks, and we'll put a regulatory overlay on top of them. That's what Dodd-Frank was. In many ways, it's also what Obamacare was. We're going to consolidate insurance companies and providers and hospitals, and we'll put a regulatory overlay on top of it. And that is a, you know, it didn't like their view, I think at the time was this is something that conservatives would like because it's the private sector doing things. It's also something liberals would like because it's, it, you put up, you're having public regulators do things, but it fundamentally, it was a technocratic approach and almost an aristocratic approach to organizing our society. And I knew something was wrong with that. I didn't totally know what, but I was like, it is a bad idea to consolidate banking power after what we just went through, after too big to fail banks. And I don't totally know why, but this doesn't work. And turns out there's a whole sort of intellectual tradition and set of actors who believe in consolidating power and they believe in technocracy, that technocrats and experts should not only serve, but should rule. And I don't believe that. I saw enough bad technocrats, bad experts get things wrong that I think, I thought, and this is not just on the economy, I thought with war and peace and all these different areas. So I thought, you know what, The we have to figure out a new balance, a new arrangement where experts serve and make explicit what some of the political choices are, but the public has to make those decisions. And so I write, my main medium is to write. I write a newsletter. I've written a, I've written a book. I write articles. I tweet to try to explain. I do some podcasting or some videos and stuff like that for breaking points, but I try to teach people about this legal tradition the anti-monopoly legal tradition, which is antitrust is a, is a center of it, but it encompasses a lot of other areas as well. And so that's what I try to do is try to say, this is your government. These are your laws. In many ways, these are your corporations and we can choose to structure them however we want. And we've chosen to structure them in a particularly autocratic way now, but we don't have to. And on Twitter, I'm pretty argumentative and I argue with antitrust experts and I argue with people and promote these ideas. And these ideas are fairly controversial. And the, the American Revolution is a radical revolution. 
America, the idea of America itself is a radical idea, equal political rights. And it still is a radical idea when you bring it up. And I am not worried about making the case for it. And I make the case vigorously. So that's the way I put it. And that's, and thus you're a Twitter gladiator. But I guess it's not fair to just call you a Twitter gladiator because, as you said, your newsletter, which I subscribe to, has what, 85,000, 100,000 subscribers? Something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. And your book is terrific. The actually, one lost my train of thought. Oh, coming back to the golf and the idea that this is clearly illegal. And I, I want to put aside, obviously, the antitrust litigation between the Live Tour and PJ Tour, which at least for now is being settled by this, whatever this agreement is. But DOJ launched an investigation into the PJ Tour and questioned whether they were an illegal monopoly or engaged in anti-competitive practices. And Senator Blumenthal has already announced in the U.S. Senate's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations a review of this planned alliance. From what I've seen, the biggest concern they've expressed is the Saudi government's role in influencing gun and potentially other sports in the U.S. And we started more questions about whether they might do this in the NBA and the NFL. But I want to put the foreign government part of it to one side, just to focus more on the specific antitrust issue. So again, if we take the Saudi government out of this and just imagine these were just two U.S. firms controlled by U.S. interests, what, again, I understand as someone who is anti-monopoly, why merging from two to one would be bad. But for those who are looking for more of the actual economic impact or the effect or what the harm is beyond the consolidation of the two, what do you see as the strongest arguments as to why this is anti-competitive or illegal? I think the best argument, just to look at the evidence, right? They're competing to, to attract golfers. And so they have to pay them more. It's just a straight up like labor, but like two companies are bidding for the services of someone. And so they have to pay them. They have to have, they have an auction. It's very similar to the, I can think of two analogies. One is the Simon and Schuster uh, Penguin Random House merger, right? Which was last year, the DOJ challenged a merger where the biggest book publisher wanted to buy like the third or fourth biggest or five big book publishers. And I've sold a book before. When you sell a book, you know, it's your labor, right? You put together a book proposal, you send it out to all these editors, and then the editors choose whether they want to bid or not. And if they bid, they if it's a hot book or a hot book proposal, they will they know they have to bid higher against someone else to beat them. And one of the things that happened is I had 10 editors that wanted my book proposal, but because they were, many of them were within the same conglomerate and the conglomerate had a a rule that only one editor from that conglomerate can bid, I only got five bids. And so they probably took a bunch of money out of my pocket just because there had been so much consolidation already. And the DOJ, so then that was when there were five, they wanted to merge to four and the DOJ challenged them and said, no, you're going to you're not going to compete as you're not going to pay as much to writers and the DOJ won because it's substantially lessens competition. I think that would be similar here with golf. When you have two entities that are trying to bid for the services of golfer, 
they you can see that the prices are going up for these golfers. And so if you combine them, they're gonna they're not gonna have to pay as much. But the other analogy I'll make is with the difference between boxing and ultimate fighting championship, because I think that's a that's there's the neither analogy works perfectly. The thing about golfing that's different than publishing is it's a bunch of different tournaments. You're not like it's not one book every couple of years. You have a bunch of tournaments every year. And they're, you know, what the PGA did is they said, they said that if you play in a non-PGA tour event, then you are banned from the PGA tour or you have certain penalties against you from the PGA tour. And that's just, that's just, that's something that like the ultimate fighting championship does, or that's basically the same thing as a kind of a non-compete in the boxing industry that there's nothing like that. And in fact, the ranking organization is by law prohibited from doing boxing promotion. And so it's a much more decentralized industry and boxers have a much higher revenue share than mixed martial artists. And most of the revenue in the, in the MMA industry goes to the ultimate fighting championships, the monopolist, whereas in boxing, most of the revenue goes to the boxers. That's just because the market structure is different. And there, this is, these are events. They're not tournaments. They're not exactly golf tournaments, but No, that was the fight in the 90s with the PGA. It was that the PGA was preventing their own golfers from going to non-PGA events. So you could see an easy situation here where it's not like you have to just have two. You could have a lot, right? Because you you could have like lots of different tournaments and there's no reason why each tournament couldn't be its own non-PGA event as long as you had just one organization doing the ranking or doing the doing the, the management of who gets in and stuff but that's the so there's a lot of ways to look at this but there's no way to look at it and say that this merger is is anything but creating a monopoly and so a couple of things one atp tour also underwent a similar attack under antitrust law the tennis tournament for having similar restrictions and ranking points based on playing in atp sanctioned events and same idea that it's they're individual tournaments. It's not like the NFL where you have teams that are part of the league that have to play each other each week. They can operate independent of each other. And it also, it's one of the first times I've heard somebody say that an industry should be more like boxing rather than less like boxing. But that's, but maybe that says more about MMA or or UFC um, than it does about boxing, but, but, or maybe just says more about the antitrust issues than some of the other issues there. But Pummeling people to death, or people <laughs> generally, like, like that's a bad thing, but that's distinct from like the market structure. Yes, yeah, yeah, fair, fair. There are also other issues in terms of why there had to be legislation around around boxing. But getting back to the salary issue or the prize issue for the golfers, and clearly, what we've seen with the live tour was the effect of competition is that prize money went way up and these golfers were getting paid hundreds of millions of dollars, at least at the very top end to go to live tour. And PJ had to respond by increasing their prize money and making their tournaments more flexible. And we got what we would expect to get when we have competition is we got innovation and the, there were benefits certainly flowing to the golfers, but the question that has come up and comes up in a lot of these cases when they involve sports organizations is were the consumers better off? And does that matter when it's a restriction on the labor market where you can clearly show that without the competition, the salaries go down and with the competition, the salaries go up or the prizes go up. But if we accept just for sake of argument, 
that a golf tournament is more attractive to consumers, is more appealing to consumers, is more attractive to the broadcaster, to the advertiser, the however you want to define the consumer in this case, because a tournament is more, more popular if you have all of the best golfers playing in the same tournament at the same time, rather than what this would present was some golfers playing at the PGA Tour, some playing at the Live Tour, but you no longer had all the best golfers playing together at the same time. So there's an argument that consumers were worse off with competition and that they will now be better off with all the golfers playing together, which can only happen with this agreement or will happen with this agreement, I should say. Does that matter? Even let's say, let's assume just for sake of argument that you accept that argument that consumers are better off if all of the golfers are playing in the same tournaments together. Does that matter when the restriction is on the labor market primarily? So I I don't think so. The Clayton Act says that may substantially lessen competition in any line of business in any region of the country. So it seems pretty clear if you just read the statute that it would apply, if it's just monopolizing that line of business, then legally it doesn't matter. I think if you took it to the, like you could read some of the Amex decision and I forget the Sabre merger and that where there was the cross, the netting out of benefits to see, you know, the courts are changing their interpretation and saying, well, it's a consumer benefit, but the, the players are, being harmed, then you have to net those out. But I think you'd probably look at it and say, is there a less restrictive alternative? And there clearly is, which is don't have the restrictions, right? So there's no reason why you couldn't have a PGA or a live tournament, a joint tournament or an independent tournament that lets all these players play. It's just you don't need the merger to make that happen. So I guess that's the way I'd look at it. But I assume you're running towards Alston and the netting. Yeah, it's both. One is how this relates to Alston and the argument that the NCAA has made for decades that they need to restrict compensation to the athletes to create the product. And and that product is college sports, which is different than pro sports. And then the question is, do you get to offset harm to the college athletes with benefits? Again, assuming those benefits do exist, some would say they don't exist, that people don't care if the athletes are paid or not. But again, assuming they do, do you get to offset the harm in the labor market with benefits in the product market. And you can, it it may be just like with this case that there are less restrictive alternatives to an absolute ban on compensation to college athletes, right? And so that that may be the way the case plays out, but I've still, I haven't, I don't think we've seen an answer yet taking the Amex case out of it just in labor versus product market, whether you can, you have to net those out or whether now with the sort of the rebirth of the focus of antitrust law on on labor markets, whether we treat worker welfare the same as consumer welfare. And if it's a worker case, we just look at the net impact on worker welfare, just like we'd look at the net impact on consumer welfare. I don't know the answer, but I'm curious if you have thoughts on what it should be, what it is or how it would be. I don't think there's any way to really measure any, like, the, I don't like welfare analysis tests in general. I think they're yeah. too 
easily gamed and vague and value laden. I just think we should look at the text of the statute, which just says may substantially lessen competition in any line of business in any region of the country. It's like clear what Congress meant. You should not have to net this stuff out because you can't. Harm to one class of people is a harm to that class of people. And you can't just say, you guys got harmed, but someone else somewhere else, they are economist nerds say that they are doing good. So I don't think you can do that, at least with something like this. And I think it's a good example where everybody knows that people go to Alabama as college football athletes because they have a better chance of getting into the pros because they have better sports medicine and better training and better connections. And there's clearly compensation. There's something of value that those players are getting. And I don't think you see anybody at Alabama not going to a game because they're like, well, maybe they're not, maybe they're not amateurs. It doesn't, it's ridiculous. That old premise that you would, you would net out consumer welfare with worker welfare. I'm sure that they'll find some poll that says that consumers would prefer that they, these be amateur, that they be amateur athletes or something like that. But at the end of the day, you could also find polling saying that the opposite. And the truth is people just want their teams to win. (laughs) That's what they want. And there's, there's no, you will not find a, you will not find anybody who's ever, oh, I'm just horrified that my team, that someone, some team, some guy on the team that I was cheering for was getting a payoff by an alumnus or something like that. Like you don't see people rejecting their teams now that there's these name and likeness compensation. You just don't see it. So on the, it it may be that with college sports, it's Congress does step in and pass some legislation that, that preempts all these different state laws and NIL and maybe create some sort of antitrust exemption, but putting that aside and shifting back to golf, what do you think given your extensive experience on the Hill and just in the politics of all of this, what do you think? Twitter persona. Yes. Yes. What do you think of also that article referred to you as intensely wonky? No, sorry. Your, your newsletter big was intensely wonky, but you were the geeky sidekick for Russell Brand. That was the other. That's that's correct. uh, And then it also uh, said that you evoke Marty McSorley, which is pretty, that's a pretty intense comparison. But what do you think are the chances that Congress does something with golf? How do you see this playing out? Because you had a theory in your newsletter that this was this can't be a real deal. They can't have actually thought that this was going to go through, even if the antitrust lawyers weren't involved. I think there's something else here. I wrote in there that one thing I don't like about talking about this deal is that it involves the Saudis, it involves Donald Trump, it involves professional global sports and a lot of money. And I just don't think that what we're seeing is on the level. It feels to me like there's dirty money involved here. There's probably like national security stuff going on. When you're looking at, one of the reasons I like domestic policy is because you can, you basically can trust that you can know what's happening. I don't like foreign policy because you, you got a lot of spies out there lying about everything. And so you just, it's hard to even have a debate about what's going on. And I feel a little bit like that's what this is. This is like, I said this in my wonky newsletter. It's a little bit like intensely wonky newsletter. It's like looking at the surface of the ocean and the ripples and waves and trying to guess what's underneath. It's just, you can guess, 
but it's just that. So if I had to look at this, I think what's happening is the Saudis and PGA Tour, for some reason, want their antitrust suit to go away. They want this conflict to go away for unknown reasons. And so they have signed this deal, which they don't actually care if it's consummated. The Saudis just want a reason to close down Live Golf and to have more leverage, or they want, they don't want to, and they most importantly don't want anyone going through their emails. And the PGA Tour wants this to go away for their own reasons. The other thing is when you close the books on something like this, let's say there's some accounting, let's say there's some money missing. Nobody cares. Live Golf closed years ago, right? There's a lot of reasons why making something like this go away. And let's be clear, Live Golf was not really an enterprise. It was paying huge amounts of money to golfers. And then they broadcast some of it on YouTube and there were no sponsors. It's not a thing, right? This is just some Saudi play money, right? Do they want to keep spending? I don't know that they care, but it's there are a lot of reasons why they might want this to go away. And who knows who they were paying and for what reasons. I don't know. I just, this does not feel, this does not feel like, like I can confidently assert what's yeah. going to happen. But if I had to guess, it'd just be like, in a year, this deal will not have been consummated, but Live Golf will be gone and everyone will pretend like this never happened. Yeah, it's just what makes it so strange the way, as you said, that they rushed, it seems like they rushed this announcement and they said yeah. so many things to, to set off red flags. The commissioner of the PGA says they're doing this to eliminate competition. That was crazy. I'd even mention we neither of us even mentioned that up front, but like also, I think one thing. So this case, so there's three things I've learned from it. One, Congress is way more populous than it used to be because they're mad at rich old golfers, which is weird. Two, the netting off, like netting benefits and costs from one market to another doesn't make any sense, right? This is a good example of like how it worker welfare consumer what doesn't make any, it's a bad idea. And then, oh, I forgot what the third one was. Oh, yeah. Third is reporters will print anything. Yeah, yeah. We knew right? that. I mean, when they announced this, I know, but it's it's like they announced this and it was like, the Saudis come up with a big win and this breathless announcement of this deal. And then every antitrust lawyer who looked at it was like, this is nuts, right? And, now, and then the day two and three, people were like, wait, this is not going to happen. And now it's got in there, wait, this isn't going to happen. And the golf world started to notice. If, it, if we hadn't, if the anti-monopoly movement didn't exist, if we hadn't resurrected monopoly as a core question, you might've seen one or two articles mentioned, this nerdy lawyer says that there might be some issues here, but like people wouldn't have recognized that law is a fundamental construct of markets and sports, but it, and it is, it, it really is fundamental to how we do things. But I don't think that re- a lot of reporters have internalized that yet. Yeah. And it's interesting because the, you're right. Not only was it just, is it antitrust lawyers, there's antitrust lawyers from all sides of the political spectrum and Josh Wright, who I imagine you don't agree with all the time said, and go back to your DUI analogy that that friends don't let friends merge or contract, combine or conspire with rivals without antitrust counsel. Right. And I, I agree with you that the more you look at this, the more it seems like, look, they just wanted to resolve the lawsuit. They wanted to stop spending money trying to really accomplish nothing other than make these golfers richer than they, they already are. 
And it seemed like the Saudis did not want to have to go through discovery and they had lost one of those procedural battles. And that ultimately this lets like the live tour will go away. Maybe it goes away tomorrow, maybe it goes away in a year, but it was probably going to go away anyway. And the Saudis will have some role in the PGA tour and maybe the DP tour. And then the question is, does that raise any antitrust issues? And what if a, what if one of the golfers decides to sue, right? The 11 golfers who originally sued dropped their lawsuit, but you could imagine a golfer deciding for whatever reason, they're going to bring a lawsuit claiming that this has reduced their salaries. I would be, I'm sure there are, I would be so angry if I were a golfer who didn't sign with Live. Right. It's just the, yeah, I would, I'm sure there's plenty of, like, there are plenty of legal angles here. Yeah, but also it sounds like the golfers who didn't sign are going to end up being compensated in in some way. And when the Saudis are able to provide two to three billion dollars to the PGA Tour, who knows? Again, as you said, how that money will be spent. There won't be much trail of it. But they can just buy out. They can just buy out a lot of the problems. It's a good. It's a true. I the other one interesting, other interesting element here is that I don't know. I actually don't know if anti-dumping or countervailing duty law might apply because the fact that the PGA tour is saying we have you have a we're facing a government with unlimited money. If you have a let's say a car an auto industry is being subsidized or the some commodities being subsidized, we have a body of law to deal with that. It's anti-dumping, countervailing duties. But I don't know about like golf or just if it's just putting capital into into something and if it is a little bit weird if if china were to buy a company here and then subsidize it then there's a loophole in some of our some of our trade law and i think this kind of opens up the question of wait a second yeah should there be some sort of should the pga tour have some sort of anti-dumping countervailing duty defense here because i think they should you shouldn't have to face the saudis alone that's crazy yeah, no, that's a good point. And that's what it maybe that's what comes out of this from Congress. Maybe it is it's it ends up being not about golf specifically, but just about how to deal with these situations in the future. Yeah, last two points and then I'll let you go. One is Jimmy Dunn, who's the PGA Tour policy board member who apparently brokered this deal and has brokered lots of deals yeah. in the past was asked whether this he thought this would be could be an antitrust violation his answer was i'm not a lawyer which is remarkable that the architect yeah. of this that's that's right. his answer when asked but the second thing is i have to no, that's like asking the, is cocaine illegal i'm not a lawyer what, <laughs> exactly I don't know, right? exactly that reminds me of a story people use white powder for a lot of things who knows what well, you could be all sorts of white powders yeah it reminds me of a story in college when there was a public safety or the Campus police found a keg in the bathroom and it was cold. It had ice on it. And cop said, what is this? I've got to report you. I said, oh, that's not mine. I think this was here. It's been here for weeks. I don't know how it got here. And public safety officer said, there's still cold, fresh, frozen ice on this. How is it still frozen ice if it's weeks old? And his answer was, I'm not a chemist. I don't know. So yeah. And then I was at Duke. That's why people hate Duke. But the last um, thing is, do you have the anti-monopoly board game? You must have that. I used to, when I was a kid, not a kid, but I had it a long time ago. Okay. Not monopoly, but anti-monopoly. Right. The problem with that game, the anti-monopoly game, is that it never ends. <laughs> is that right? I have it. I've never played it, but I have it. So what happens is you go around, if somebody forms a monopoly, then they, the other players like break it up. So it can never end. 
fitting. It's that's, like good for life, but not good. Yeah, for I was going to say, yeah, that's yeah. the story of your life right there. That's why you're like, but you need the board game to end <laughs> with your sister crying. <laughs> now, on that note, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. This is a All great right, conversation. Thanks. Learned a lot. Likewise. Appreciate it. And thank you for listening. And thanks, as always, to my sponsors, the Tulane Center for Sport and RitVest. Now that it's the middle of June, isn't it about time that you RitVest? See you next time between the lines.